Welcome to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best life and how you can figure out how to do it too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Wildfire uh, Podcast Studios in wonderful wood to, uh, Woodbury. I got that wrong already. Woodbury, New Jersey. And we have, we're here with our engineer, Taylor, who keeps us uh, running smooth and even. And without him, we couldn't do these podcasts. So we have a couple of uh, great guests today. And uh, I, I think we need to make a comment before we get into our guests about the luckiest people in the world and remind everybody that they're the people who sit down and design their own lives and who understand that things are going to change. And so they don't just design their own lives once they constantly design their own lives so that they can live their lives under their own terms and live them being happy and content with where they're going. And uh, we have two of the luckiest people in the world joining us in a minute. Uh, let me bring on Rebecca Hoffman. Rebecca has been our guest host for the last month. And unfortunately, Rebecca, this is our last one, isn't it? Uh-oh. Uh oh. Yeah, so we're gonna have to do something about that. And 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 Rebecca runs Good Egg Concepts. And every time I think about this, I get this image of Humpty Dumpty. But Humpty <laughs> didn't fall off the wall in this case. He's he's there. And he's intact. Yeah, he's intact. And <laughs> and and Rebecca designs branding for people and she is one of the best storytellers in the world and best one of the best people to help you craft stories. And we're gonna craft another one today, aren't we? aren't we, Rebecca? Yes, we are. We have a, a great story to tell here today, and I'm excited uh, for it. Cool. Why don't you introduce our guest? Sure. Our guest today is Lourdes Nichols, who I'm so proud to say is my friend. Uh, we met through some mutual work we were doing together, and as sometimes work will do, when you're done with the work, you get to talking about your life when you like somebody. And we sat together one day and talked over a coffee, and she told me a little bit of her life story, which really resonated with me because it was a story that's of personal interest to me privately. Um, and I'm going to let Lourdes tell the story, but I'm just going to say that Lourdes is starting to devote and dedicate her life to greater understanding and education around the Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. And I'm just delighted that Lourdes is going to take a little time with us to tell us about her family and kind of give us a sense of why this chapter in American history is profound and needs to be considered, especially in the moment we're in today. Lourdes, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here, and I feel like the luckiest person to be part of <laughs> a part of today and a part of you, and you've done so much to help me. So I appreciate oh, you so well, much, Rebecca. Well, thank you. Know, you. And I <laughs> one, one, once you're on one of these podcasts, Lord, you're one of the luckiest people in the world, whether you want to be or not, and you can't get out of it. Okay, I'll take well, it. Uh, maybe we should begin at the logical beginning. And maybe, Lourdes, tell us a little bit about your family. And if you don't mind, for the listeners who may not be as familiar, can you describe what the Japanese-American incarceration was? It was previously referred to as internment, but that's not a term that's used anymore. And maybe you can sort of yeah, give a little so, background so we understand. Sure. So, so when I was growing up, I always knew that my mom was born in a Japanese what I called an internment camp um, at Manzanar during World War II. Um, I know now 
that um, the word internment camp is really an outdated term. It's just not not what it was. Um, it was um, an incarceration camp, and it's you know taken time and understanding and really learning more and working on this, um, you know, researching my family that I've come to understand the, the terminology that was used at the time during World War II and the terminology that we know now and what, what exactly was going on. Many of the uh, words that were used during World War II were to, to um, shape this narrative about um, what was going on. I mean, two-thirds of the people that were incarcerated the Japanese Americans were U.S. citizens. You know, they were forcibly removed from their homes and they were sent to places all over the country. Um, they sold all of their belongings and, you know, basically had to rebuild their lives, you know, after the war. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of depressing, actually, but um, I, I know it's, I mean, it's, it's a sad, it's a sad piece that um, I, was um, asked to do, I was at, in high school, I was required to do a family history project. And that's kind of how this ball got rolling. I was required to interview my grandparents. And that's really when this all started. So, you know, and 1982. <laughs> so you were living, your family was living in Berkeley, California. You're a teenager Correct. in high school, going through all the things that teenagers go through. And you're asked to do a family history, like oral history type project. What did you uncover? You know, I, um, again, I knew that, um, I knew kind of this term, uh, that my mom was born in a camp, but I didn't really know. I heard family members talking about camp, but I thought it was summer camp, honestly. Um, I didn't really get it. You know, I was six, 15 years old at the time and just, um, you know, growing up, I guess. So what happened was this project was a requirement. My mom and I flew to Los Angeles where her parents were. And for the first time, I think ever, my mom said, they talked about what they endured while living um, at Manzanar. And it just brought a lot of shame to my family, um, a lot of, um, you know, hard times for sure. My prior to World War II, my grandfather um, had quite a life, you know, and I think that really that whole experience and even after the war, um, after World War II, he actually worked for the U.S. government and was a translator uh, for the war crimes trials, which, by the way, is probably one of the most disturbing things you can probably do. Um, I mean, really, I mean, it's just unbelievable the things that he did. And um, I think it really depressed him quite a bit. So. so there were so your grandfather pre World War II, he had an interesting job. But then he ended up in California. Could you tell us, I guess the part that really um, affected me was the work that he did before there was ever a war. And then he, uh, your family had a garden center. Uh, and we'll kind of talk up for a minute about what he was like, how he was an expert in something. And then how did that end up becoming something he was able to use uh, to survive Manzanar? Sure. Um, so long story short, my grandfather was not a U.S. citizen. My grandmother was. He came to the United States in 1916. Um, he came to Los Angeles. Um, long story short, in the early 1920s, he made his way to Chicago and he went to school at the 
uh, Art Institute of Chicago. And while he was there, he met a man named George Harding Jr. And George Harding Jr. was probably one of the wealthiest people in Chicago at the time. I know he was the first person to own an automobile. He had his own airplane. Um, he had a mansion um, in the Hyde Park area. Um, and he uh, collected arms and armor and art from all over the world. And he uh, met my grandfather and was very, I don't know, interested in him and his background and hired him to be his curator um, of all of the medieval um, items that he had and paintings. And my grandfather worked for George Harding Jr. from the mid-1920s until 1940. Um, and during that time, my grandfather lived at the mansion. He, um, met presidents of the presidents, vice presidents. He met Al Capone. He met lots of dignitaries who came to the museum, which by the way, was the house, you know, before the field museum and other places, people had, um, like Dree house, you know, they had, they had, um, private museums in their own home. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so my grandfather, worked there. And, you know, again, I have newspaper articles. I have all sorts of history about that. Um, the ironic thing is, you know, George Harding Jr. died unexpectedly in 1939. And uh, that's kind of when things started to fall apart with, you know, with what was going to happen with my grandfather's job. Uh, and my grandfather and grandmother ended up moving to Los Angeles. Um, I will say there is a happy ending to the George Harding collection. It is currently um, visible at the Art Institute of Chicago for many people who know the Chicagoland area. It's a it's a real gem. And um, my family, I, we feel very fortunate because my grandfather's albums of the photos were used to put the displays together. Um, many of the things they weren't um, as you know, had they had never seen photos from inside the mansion, um, the way my grandfather took them. So it's kind of a, a nice part of it being a part of, you know, living in the Chicagoland area. It's kind of a nice, um, piece of history for our family. Well, and I can add, it's probably one of the most popular displays at the Art <laughs> Institute. It's where people go because art comes to life when you see the medieval armor and all the accessories. Absolutely. Uh, so, so your grandfather enjoyed this tremendous, this rarefied life here. And then he goes to Los Angeles with, with your grandmother and right. they buy or form a garden center, correct? Right. So, so my grandfather could not find a job as a curator, you know, when he went to Los Angeles. I mean, it's kind of a unique job. Um, I, apparently my grandfather was going to be a curator of a museum in Manchuria, but my grandmother's family who was from Los Angeles didn't, didn't think it was a good idea in 1940 to go. So the only thing that my grandfather could piece together was to um, become a gardener. And that's what a lot of Japanese Americans were doing at that time. So he opened a garden center in Culver city. Um, and he, he had that garden center until, um, you know, until he went to Manzanar, uh, on December 7th, 1941, it was actually my grandparents' fifth wedding anniversary because they were born on, they were married on that date in 1936. And I can only imagine that their five-year wedding anniversary was 
a complete nightmare and it really wasn't what they were envisioning. Um, and then within about two months on, on February 19th, 1942, um, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which required all Japanese Americans, whether or not they were um, American citizens or not, living on the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California, and parts of Arizona, to be sent to these um, incarceration centers. So, so your so family my, then had to uh, make, make quick plans because there was no choice. The government was going to force them to move. Uh, what did they do? Correct. So my grandfather, um, you know, my grandparents, from what I learned, had to sell everything or get rid of everything. And so the they had to sell the nursery. And the only person that they were able to find that would was remotely interested in the nursery um, was the milkman who came um, to their house every day. Uh, my grandfather said, are you interested? And he said, I only have $75. And so that's all that my grandfather got for the whole garden nursery. And, you know, Rebecca, you know, you've seen photos of it. I mean, it yes. wasn't a small little shop. It was, it was, it beautiful. was quite big. There was a pond. There were, it was, it looked gorgeous, like a park. Gorgeous plantings. Yes. A little bit of a dream world. Yes. So yes. they got $75 for their family business and they moved to Manzanar. Yes. And yet, and I, I don't want to tell this part of the story. I want you to tell it. But yet when your, your, your grandparents get to Manzanar, your grandfather still, in spite of this terribly adverse circumstance, does something spectacular. What did he do there? So my grandfather, um, you know, I'm sure that it was a very scary time to, you know, board up, go somewhere you don't know, um, live in a 20 by 25 foot barrack, um, you know, build your own mattress out of straw. I mean, it, it, the, the pictures of what they had to do just to, to get into their accommodations is just nothing that you want to do. Um, it wasn't un until maybe about uh, maybe six months after, less than six months after they arrived, they arrived in Manzanar on April 8th, 1942. Um, the head of Manzanar, Ralph Merritt, found out that my grandfather had worked at a museum um, and had this um, experience. And he asked my grandfather to start uh, a museum at the camp for the incarcerates um, to... Um, show them what the rest of the world looks like and how how they can, you know, things that they could do, either participate or see things that they weren't used to seeing. So my grandfather created the Visual Education Museum, which was really to help young children who, by the way, maybe they had never been in a grocery store before, or maybe they had, they didn't know, you know, my grandfather wrote to all these places and asked for books and photos of like insects, animals, um, all sorts of things, um, and created a place for um, people to see exhibits and participate. And some of the participating, uh, some of the participants really, I think, got a lot out of it. I mean, as you know, like working uh, with art or creating art um, some amazing things came out of that. So absolutely amazing. So, yeah. so here's your grandfather and your grandmother. They're living in, they're incarcerated. This is not, uh, not by choice. And still he creates basically a museum or a gallery for understanding the world. 
Correct. With, and yeah. this this incarceration has an unknown end at this time, right? So he's building Absolutely. something. And famous artists came to see this gallery and showed some of their art there. Am I correct? Maybe a famous photographer? Yeah, that's, I mean, um, you know, Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lange were both um, hired by the government to take photos. So maybe you've seen some of these photos um, and they are quite striking. The, the main thing to know about those photos is that um, those photographers were not allowed to take pictures of the barbed wire of the guard towers with guards inside with guns, you know, pointing towards the camp. Um, so Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lang both captured the people that were there um, and all of their daily life um, experiences. And my grandfather put together, um, you know, the Ansel Adams exhibit at Manzanar, which um, luckily I have a photo of. Um, and Ansel Adams came back to Manzanar four times. I mean, he was regularly um, there and uh, really had a lot of sympathy for the people who were there. Um, I, unfortunately, I didn't get to talk to my grandfather about Ansel Adams because I assumed that they had conversations. Um, but, uh, I still, you know, I think that Ansel Adams photos, um, and the book that he wrote called Born Free and Equal, um, which, um, actually ended up becoming a banned book and Ansel Adams was really, um, not well received because he wanted people to understand that, you know, the Japanese Americans were not a threat and that, um, no Japanese American was ever convicted of any kind of crime or helping um helping in any way during the war um so it's a tragic it's a sad it's a sad piece actually you know um let me interrupt and i don't know if you noticed but i haven't interrupted for 12 minutes i never not interrupt for 12 minutes i mean what oh, an, what an incredible story and and I I want to put this story in perspective a little bit because uh, here you are, Lord. You grew up in Berkeley. You moved to Chicago in 1991. You're a normal person. You have three kids, right? Yeah, you, you have yeah. a you have a job which you like, right? And I do. And, and, I do. and you're out running marathons, and you met everybody no. in the city of Oak Park, so that every two blocks you would have somebody to save you if you stumbled in a marathon, right? <laughs> I, I think I do. Yes, I hope I do. <laughs> yeah, so so here you are, and then you get hit somewhere along the way with this incredible story as a fifteen-year-old uh, that yeah. probably no fifteen-year-old should have to face, and yet you faced it, and it's become a project that you're running not in addition, not not in addition to your life. You you, you haven't dropped your life. You're you're running it like you normally did, and you're you're spending time with this. So you've got this incredible story. Where's it going? What are you going to do with it? Good question. I mean, honestly, I love family history. I love anyone's family history, but my family history has become just a part time job for me. I mean, it's always in the fore. You know, it's always on my mind. Um, I'm always trying to uncover new things. Uh, I would say that there was an exhibit in 2017, then they came for me in Chicago, and then it went to New York City. Um, I was asked to um, if I could come up with some documents or pieces for that exhibit, and that kind of got me reinvigorated in this whole um, piece of history. My mom um, was very reluctant. She really was not 
um, into talking about it. It brought a lot of shame to her family. Um, but I will say that um, bringing her to Manzanar, um, we went several times, uh, and then going to the Then They Came For Me exhibit in Chicago and New York, you know, she really started to uh, understand more and accept um, it. I mean, she has said, she said for a long time, it was intergenerational trauma, even though she didn't remember ever being at Manzanar as a baby. Um, you know, it was, it was part of her and her family, you know, so that has been kind of my, I don't know, I, it, I just, something inside of me, I just keep, keep moving forward, even though it's, it's hard. Um, my mom passed away, uh, about a year and a half ago and, you know, she was my best friend and biggest cheerleader. I mean, that's, you know, so doing this by myself, I mean, I'm choked up just talking about it. It's really hard, but, yeah, but I'm you, trying to, you have yeah. a movie coming out of this, right? Or some film. Oh my gosh. Well, I, ha I have, I'm so lucky to have, um, Rebecca, who introduced me to Ariel Nobile, who is working on a documentary called, well, the series is Belonging in the USA. And um, she has picked amazing people, and I'm lucky to be one of them um, to focus on. And um, so that should be coming out, I think, I'm hoping December 7th, um, 2021, which is the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day. And it's also the 30th anniversary of the day my grandmother died um, because everything happens on December 7th in my family. My grandparents were married, Pearl Harbor Day happened, and my grandmother died um, on that day. So it's kind of bittersweet, but yeah, I hope. Spectacular, I mean, spectacular yeah. history. And, yeah. you know, I as, as I hear you speaking, I think, okay, if I'm just listening to this and I don't know much, what can I see? What can I look at? I know the movie's coming out. Or it's not a movie. It's a documentary film that's coming out later this year. Um, when I first met you, you said you need to watch The Orange Story, which is right. a short film, maybe 12, 15 minutes. Right. Um, so the Orange Story, yes, um, yeah. which is um, I recommend to classrooms when I speak to them. Um, it's at theorangestory.org. It's only 15 minutes, and that's so that you can get it in class. It was filmed here in Chicago by... Um, my friend Jason Matsumoto, um, and it really shows um, how Japanese Americans went from living everyday life like the three of us, um, and then suddenly something happens, and um, uh, one particular person has to um, sell their business, pack things up. Um, you know, it's it's heart wrenching, um, but I think that that's a really great intro. Um, it's pretty much required viewing um, because then you can kind of be more up to speed. And especially it's for all ages. I mean, kids, young, young kids can watch it and understand, um, you know, older adults, anybody. So, well, I love so the orange. Un yeah. Unfortunately, time is at its end. So, Rebecca, do you oh, have no. any do you have any final comments, Rebecca? And then we'll get some out of Lords. Well, I, you know, I, I just want to say thank you to Lourdes for sharing the story. And I hope that people who are listening to this will take their um, knowledge effort a little further. There's never been a better time to have a look at this chapter in American history and consider, you know, what happened and how we can we can go one better. We can do better. Yeah. And Lourdes, any final comments? Just I mean, I'm. 
I don't feel, I mean, I feel like everyone has a story to tell about their family. They just have to unlock it. And I've been, I keep trying to unlock more, but um, yeah, it's been a bittersweet experience, but I'm still, I'm still learning new things all the time. So it's, it's great. It's great. I love it. And thanks, everybody, for being here. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for being our co-host. Uh, time has flown by in four weeks, it hasn't fast. it? And, and uh, everybody, join us next week. We're going to have a brand-new co-host. I'm not telling in advance. And we've got uh, some great guests. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll see Lords at one of our cocktail events soon where you can actually sit down and ask her some questions about this whole process. So thank you guys for being with us. Thank our listeners for being with us and we'll see you again next week thank you for listening to changing the rules a weekly podcast about people who are living their best life and how you can figure out how to do that too join us with your lively host ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world